0: You're listening to OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. OEA Grow is by members for members. In Season 7, members discuss special education with Venus Reeve. Welcome back to OEA Grow Season 7. I'm your host, Venus Reeve and this season we are exploring special education. And for today, we have two guests, Dr. Karen Apgar and Justin Potts from the Student Services Department of Eugene-Forge School District.
1: So I I will say that um, one of the things that Justin and I actually have trained in, I think we're up to like 15 or 16 different states now at various conferences and workshops, Um, Very specifically about learning disabilities. But one of the things we say in general, because usually we're speaking to school psychologists um, in these states, is that, you know, school psychologists are trained to be scientist practitioners. So let's look at this like the scientific method. We have a question we need to answer. Does this child have, you know, why is the child struggling to um, read very well? So based on all the information we already have, what is our hypothesis about this, that they do or do not have a specific learning disability, or is there lack of reading due to severe ADHD or whatever it is? But build the hypothesis, then determine what additional information you need to collect or find out in order to answer that question. That's your evaluation plan. Go collect that information. That's your evaluation. Now sit down and look at your results and see whether or not your hypothesis was accurate or not. So very much the scientific method, um, and that's how we problem solve through evaluations.
0: I'm gonna veer off the question here because you, you have me thinking about what happens when you come back to the table and you've got all your data and you're going, whoa, our hypothesis is not met with this data. It, this, is, this does not correlate or connect in some way. What then?
1: Well, on the immediate point of that, then the child is found not eligible under that category. Um, If during the course of the evaluation you discovered some fascinating new things that nobody had brought up before and are leading you to hypothesize about a different area, um, that's one path. You could go after that, or um, if, if the team decided to do that. But most often, if we do a really good job in our evaluation planning, We try to hit everything that could possibly, that we have any inkling could be the challenge for the student. And if they don't meet the criteria and then they're not eligible for special education services, then they're not going to get an IEP. So the team then needs to decide, well, what does this child need? If they don't need an IEP, what is it that they need? Are we talking about a 504 plan? Are we talking about some interventions academically or behaviorally? Are there some other supports or some other changes we can make for this child that are going to improve whatever's going on here? Um, And, you know, we we get creative about problem solving what kind of supports a student would need.
2: Uh, I would say I've had, uh, I've done well over a thousand eligibilities (laughs) now. Um, I would say that the, the likelihood that the hypothesis is not addressed uh, um, in the process of evaluation is fairly rare. In other words, the circumstance where uh, things don't go the way that that they appear up front is pretty unusual. And if it happens, it means you didn't really have a, as much information as you needed up front a good example of that is that uh, a child's for example responsiveness to interventions in other words uh, a how how did our attempts to treat the problem or address the problem did those meet with success that's an area that we often may not have a lot of information on but ideally we uh, our job as school psychologists particularly is not to is not to make the decision for the team we're there to analyze and present the information in a way that's coherent and it tells a bit of a story of how that child experiences learning and um, as a result of that they may qualify for special education or they may not they may not meet the specific criteria Uh, for the category or categories that we are considering. So the, our job is to really, is really as consultants, as communicators in that process. Um, and all the team members, there really should be a a team of individuals conducting evaluations, although across the state and across the country, you will find school psychologists may do just one particular thing. uh, and for example, uh, special education teachers may do standardized academic testing, whereas in, in the Eugene School District, we do the uh, standardized achievement testing. And so that the amount of involvement of a whole team of individuals varies, but at the end of the day, the entire decision-making process should be guided by a, a really well-reasoned um, clear, clear argument about whether or not the child met any of the individual criteria for um, as a child with a disability and answers the questions about whether or not there is adverse effect on their educational performance and such that they require specially des- designed instruction because they, without that, they will be unable to make adequate progress uh, towards their, their learning goals.
0: So in in all of our discussion I'm hearing over and over again the importance of data the importance of team and you know I'm hearing before the evaluation planning process you're gathering lots and lots of data the general education teacher the uh, staff in school then we have this referral we talk about the evaluation plan then you guys go out and gather more data and we look at more data and then we all come back together with even more data. And it's not just academic data, it's you know, developmental, um, developmental data or family history or uh, emotional, social data, all kinds of things that can impact this very important and weighty decision. This is not a decision that's taken lightly, and I think this answers a question I've heard so many people say, which is, "Why does it take so long?" Aha! We got to gather some data. We got to gather a lot of data, and this is a big decision.
1: Yeah, I I think you're right. Uh, the the when we're looking to see if we even suspect a disability, um, I want to see things like an attendance history. Uh, discipline referrals, um, health status, there's nothing more frustrating than getting into the middle of a reading evaluation and finding out that this child is supposed to be wearing glasses, but nobody told you that and they haven't been wearing them. Um, Talk about a rule out. Yeah. So what is their health history, Uh, their vision, their hearing, um, anything else? Is there, you know, um, interviewing the parents? What is their family culture? What is their home language? What um, what kinds of mobility issues do kids have? I mean, there's research that shows every time a child changes a school mid- in, um, their education, they can lose up to about four months of, of learning. So if you have a yeah. child that moves several times in one year, several times in three years, that's really important for me to know before I get started. Are there been any kind of traumas? You know, what's happened in this child life? Have they, have they, um, you know, been, Um, you know, moved from another country Were they refugees for some reason, um, had there been, you know, violence in the family has there, is there a parent in jail? Is there, um, you know, has did several people they know die from COVID that's all very traumatic information that is absolutely going to impact your ability to learn as a quote unquote normal kid. Right. Um, but then I also want, I also want to see things from the classroom. Show me work samples. Show me what the average kid in your kid can, class can do versus what this kid can do. Show me um, over the year what's changed for them or what hasn't. Uh, show me benchmark assessments. When people hear the word data or data, however you want to say that, um, <laughs> it, they tend to think numbers. And data is not just numbers. Data can be observations. Data can be histories. Data can be um, even you know anecdotes that the teacher tells can sometimes give some really good insights about what might be going on with the student. Justin, did you want to? I just, yeah,
2: I, uh, no, I, I think all of that is, uh, is spot on. I, I think it's, I guess, uh, the thing that came to mind was that, um, it, it doesn't, I don't want to m- mean for it to sound like a student who, uh, had a trauma history or, um, has a second language, uh, just automatically doesn't qualify. These are factors that we take into account. The The statement in the law essentially asks the team to determine whether or not uh, one or more factors is the primary reason, one or more of those exclusionary factors is the primary reason. So it doesn't mean that a student who, in fact, one could argue that particularly for trauma histories that a a, a Long term trauma, we know changes the brain and Mm -hmm. uh, that that uh, those changes in the brain can become disabling. And so um, I think what we're trying to avoid are making determinations about special education based on uh, short term or very acute uh, impacts. Such as the result of, you know, having, as Karen mentioned, a death in the family or the short term impacts of the COVID school closure and access to uh, a very different learning environment uh, over that period of time, in which we are currently really trying to. Uh, Wrap our heads around exactly how that's impacted students. We know for example on national studies that they've lost a lot more math performance Um, So it is not a surprise that one of the areas that I see more frequent referrals in used to be very rare but in math specific learning problems right now as a general rule, they are a a, a math learning disability that is specific to math should be quite uncommon compared to reading so if a Mm. student has no reading problems no reading development problems but just has a math uh, concern i'm automatically thinking a little bit more about instructional variables than i am about an underlying uh, math specific disability even though there it does exist it's you know it's been researched for for dozens of years um, but it's uh, it, it, we have to look carefully at the evidence on the instructional side to really account for what we might be seeing or considering is as, a, as a possible disability.
0: Gotcha. Um, so you, you kind of alluded to this a little bit already, but I was wondering if there was anything else specific that you wanted to share about how school psychologists support school teams. I mean, we've talked a lot about this process, but how else do school psychologists help support school teams and students and educators?
2: Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I think you can look at uh, school psychology training programs, and they do vary across the country, but um, it's roughly the equivalent in, in credits or semester hours to uh, the number of hours of a law degree. Mm. It sits kind of between a, it sits between a master's and a, and a PhD. So it's a master, typically it's a master's plus 45 or master's plus 90 or an EDS sometimes a degree. Um, And so what I think most people don't realize about school psychologists is that we are trained mental health providers um, that uh, everything from uh, group counseling to family dynamics uh, to uh, school-based consultation, to uh, crisis response. Uh, one of the other hats that I wear is I'm the co-chair of the Oregon Alliance for the Prevention of Suicide Schools Committee. So um, a, a lot of my work is involved right now in um in the implementation of Oregon's Addies Act, which is uh, requiring schools to have comprehensive prevention, intervention, and postvention plans, so we have that um, mental health side that often doesn't get used. We we spend mm-hmm. a lot of time doing paperwork, which is unfortunate. Um, it is kind of part of it, part of the 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 job though, to many respects. And then we also have that training in understanding assessments, understanding intervention. Um, not all, like I started as a, as an educator, um, as a learning specialist first before I became a school psychologist. So I had a number of years of being in, in the classroom in a fairly unique setting in, in juvenile justice, but, um, not all school psychologists may have any time in the classroom. Uh, but they are expected to uh, learn uh, to be experts in uh, curriculum and interventions, particularly for kids who um, who may have disabilities. So it's it's a lot of hats to wear. It's it's <laughs> nice. a legal hat. You kind of have the educator hat. You have um, uh, you have the mental health hat. Um, and you kind of have a medical hat, too. You kind ha- of you, you have to straddle into the, the medical world because a lot of these disability categories also have uh, their own sort of medical criteria that, that you have to take into account.
1: Yeah, I, I think when people ask me, um, what does a school psychologist do? Uh, first, I just kind of gulp and say, how, how long do you have to talk to me about that? <laughs> um, but I, I think in my head I divide it into two general uh, categories of what we do. Um, we provide direct support in intervention to kids. So you're know, working directly with kids. So obviously that could include conducting special education evaluations. Um, but it also means engaging in suicide risk assessments, participating in behavioral threat assessments. Um, like Justin mm-hmm. said, providing crisis intervention and responses. One of my other hats is as the... Um, Facilitator for the Lane County Tragedy Response Network, where we um, share and learn, and um, actually send people across districts to respond to crisis situations when needed. When the when the district experiencing the crisis does not have the resources, uh, the larger districts will send folks in. Um, and as he said, and when there's time, which there often isn't, you know, providing small group or individual mental health counseling, it's a large part of our training. So that's kind of the direct support. The other thing I see us doing most of the time is consultation. So, uh, Mm. that could be with teachers, with administrators, with parents, basically we're trying to improve whatever support systems there are for students. So, um, this could be helping teams make database decisions about interventions or, um, you know, plans. Um, it could be helping in administrators figure out how to improve school-wide practices like behavior systems and school culture and climate, um, you know, helping other, you know, parents or teachers or even other students sometimes understand disabilities, mental health, um, evidence-based research, and like Justin said, school law. So we, we tend to be the, the local um, law people that, that people in the building go to and say, hey, if this is happening, am I supposed to do that or the other thing? And <laughs> then we're the ones that seem to answer that question. And of course, I've managed to turn that into a bit of a specialty in my current job where I, um, you know, spend a lot of time explaining all of those things to people, which I really enjoy. I also like arguing with lawyers. So, you yeah, know, it's this little, <laughs> it's a little specialty of mine. <laughs>
2: Karen and I just got back from uh, the National School Psychology Conference in Denver um, in in February. Mm -hmm. And I think what you'll notice is that school psychologists do a lot of different things. You will find them in a variety of capacities across this country. There were about 5,600 school psychologists there on site at at the conference and maybe another 2,000 or more um, online. And if you were to sit down and have a conversation with them, the the construction of the job, you would you would find some some uh, some themes, but you would also see a lot of variation. Um, mm-hmm. you would see school psychologists who actually are the case managers for the entire special ed population in their schools. Oh. You would find school psychologists who don't touch a bit of paperwork. They only engage in counseling wow. and therapeutic interactions. Uh, they do parent training. Um, so I, I, and some of them are administrators. Some of them are, uh, in other kinds of roles, um, because it's a it it covers a lot of ground, um, and we are uh, trained rabble rousers to some degree. We are, um, uh, I, I think, a lot of graduate training programs uh, sort of provide us with the. Um, the incentive to go out and be change agents in our systems, to find areas mm. that need improvement, as Karen was saying, to be, to look at systems that may not be functioning the way they should, um, and, and be engaged in them. And so that, uh, and that process of change is complicated in education. Uh, it, these are big systems. They do not move on a dime. It is very difficult to, um, take these systems in a different direction because they kind of want to maintain their momentum. So uh, I, our expertise, particularly across law and, our, uh, and in the way that education uh, practices impact students is an area where we really can um, leverage our expertise.
0: Mm. Wow. I have learned so much today um, and I have gotten to know you both so much more than I already had the pleasure of. Um, Is there anything that you didn't get to share that you would like to?
2: Yeah, you know, I I thank you so much for the opportunity. This has been really, this has been a lot of fun. Hopefully all of the, uh, the recording pieces go together properly Um, because technology is the other area that I, uh, the other part of the world that, that uh, the other hat that I wear as well. I think uh, just from the standpoint of the topic for today, for uh, folks who may be listening to this podcast is to understand that um, is really that, that takeaway of the system, the process may look very complicated. We're there to help um, the whole mm-hmm. team, educators, parents, even the, the student themselves, uh, understand what, is, uh, what their needs are better. I think a lot of what we do is more around our, our ability to sort of um, change a perspective on a particular, uh, on a particular issue. Every, when, when kids and parents see us or teachers see us, they're there because there's a problem. They, they have a concern. And sometimes our job is to reframe that problem as, um, in, in a different way so that we can make progress because when they're coming to us, they're stuck, they have a problem and they're stuck on that problem and they don't know what the possible solutions are. So our job is really to, uh, try to, try to change our perspective on that. Oftentimes we're there to change the behavior of the people around that child, not change the child, um, so that's uh <laughs> that that would be my that would be my big uh takeaway for, for everybody.
1: Oh, well, that's that's yeah. I love the way you said that. Um and yes, Venus, thank you for inviting us. This is so much fun. Um and I couple things that I thought of as things for folks to take away. Uh we do Uh, complain a bit about the number of pieces of paper that are required to get through a special education process. But it does really help to remember that the reason all of those pieces of paper are there, all of that paperwork, is to be able to protect that child and that family's 14th Amendment rights to due process. A child with a disability is a protected class, and we cannot treat them any differently than anyone else without their knowledge or if they're a minor, their parents' knowledge and consent. So everything we do does have to be documented and agreed upon and signed and filed um, so that we can show that we are not in any way um, removing this child's due process of law. So that is is one of the the big things that's difficult to remember in the the throw of the day-to-day. I think the other big thing to remember is that and I I like to say this when I do presentations to like graduate students and stuff is that, you know, IDEA is the individuals with disabilities education act, not the individuals who might need some extra help with something education act. (laughs) Um, And I know that there are a lot of school districts out there where the only thing they have available is general education and special education. They don't have interventions or they don't have um, other tiered systems of support. And, um, Those are really so very important because if a child doesn't actually have a disability that requires special education, it is actually detrimental to put a child inappropriately into special education. It's not just extra help or small group instruction. It really is a big change and we do not want to actually add risk of failure to a child by pulling them into a system they didn't need to be in. So I will leave folks with that.
0: Thank you so much. That's both of you. I really appreciate you being here. I feel like we've been enriched and reminded in many ways, myself personally, of why I am a special educator and why sometimes when we're feeling frustrated, we it's because we really want what this child needs to happen. And that may be special education, but it may not. And if it's not, the conversation doesn't end there. We get to keep figuring it out and work for this child and and really give them what they need. So thank you both, uh, Dr. Karen Apgar and Justin Potts, for being here today. Um, A little tip for our listeners. Go and visit Oregon Council for Exceptional Children online. If you are interested in a mini grant opportunity or some other resources, they have fun stuff to share with us. Uh, So check it out, oregon.exceptionalchildren.org or their Facebook page. Thank you all so much for listening. For more OEA professional learning opportunities, visit grow.oregonad.org.